Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help com slash sacred text. Chapter 15, the Quidditch final. He sent me this, Hermione said, holding out the letter. Harry took it. The parchment was damp and enormous teardrops had smudged the ink so badly in places that it was very difficult to read. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Just a reminder before we start today's episode, we are looking for voicemails. So please submit a voicemail around two minutes long where you bless a character from the chapters that we are reading or really the chapters that you happen to be listening to right now. We absolutely love hearing from you and are really grateful. Vanessa, this week, our theme is triumph. What story of triumph do you have to share with us today? So Matt, in the 11th grade, I was in the play, The Man Who Came to Dinner. I was a bit of a theater kid in high school. And this kid, James, got cast as the man who came to dinner in this play, the titular character. And James was excellent in the role, but he also came from a family of actors. His father was a career character actor, and his mother was a Broadway actor for years and a very successful working actor. And James's mother was dying the semester that we were rehearsing the play. And then she ended up passing away the day that the play opened. And this is a high school play. And so obviously the director of the play was like, we just won't do the show, right? Your mother passed away. And for James, it felt like the highest honor that he could do to do the play anyway. His mother at the end of her life was saying a lot to him about, I want you to go on without me. You know, you're 17 years old. You cannot spend your life grieving me. 
And not only that, she was an actress, right? And she took the expression, the show must go on very seriously. So the first 10 minutes of the show, James isn't in, but he has this like great, dramatic, hilarious entrance in the show. And it's very funny. It's been like building up to this point, you know, the whole time in the show. And something that usually does not happen in a high school performance is everybody saw James, this boy whose mother passed away just hours earlier this day, be in character and ready to act this part in this play. And everyone in the audience just stands and applauds him. And James just sat there waiting. The applause died down and he kept going with the play. There was no acknowledgement for the applause. And then he got through the whole performance brilliantly. And then, you know, he had the final bow because he had the lead role in the show. And so he went center stage and he took his bow and he got another standing ovation. And that is when he broke down, right? That is when he started crying. And to me, when I think of triumph, I think of that moment where James was standing at the foot of the stage, taking that applause after having accomplished this feet. It was triumphant in its own way when he just like came onto stage and people applauded. Like the the gesture of him showing up was beautiful and incredible, especially given his family history. But the fact that he got through it, (laughs) right, I think was the true moment of triumph. And triumph is something that I struggle with because if it's triumph over another person, as we see in the Quidditch match, It's about showing your power over someone, whereas what James did, right, like that was a triumph because it was a way to honor his mother. It wasn't over anyone else. And I love thinking about triumph in that way, as a way to honor, not to overpower. Yeah, Vanessa, I I have sort of misgivings about triumph as well because of my misgivings about triumphalism, right? Like the kind of showboaty kind of expressions of victory, right? The word... Triumph comes from the Greek originally, a Greek word, thriambos, which is a hymn to Dionysus, the god Dionysus. But traditionally, these were, it was understood as like a military procession of celebration when you defeated an enemy, Hmm. right? So everything that you're talking about, I think, is implied in the word, the sense of celebration, the sense of defeat. But I think it gets really rich. The concept of the term gets really rich when we use it metaphorically in examples like the one you gave, where the enemy we defeat is not like another person. And the celebration is not a victory celebration. It's something else, some kind of recognition of the power of of a particular human spirit or the power of a particular community to rally in the face of challenges. And I think your story really captures that well. And I'm interested to see where and how we'll see triumph arise in this chapter. Okay, Matt, are you ready to reign triumphant in the 30-second recap? No, I am not. Great that we're we're not trying to triumph over one another. That's right. We are a team. It was a trick question, but you passed. Good job. On your mark. Get set. Go. So they read the letter from Hagrid and and it's very sad. And and they're all very sad. And then Ron um makes up with Hermione and she apologizes. And then uh they go to Charms and they're cheered, but but Hermione misses it. And then they go to 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 divination and Trelawney is not very nice and Hermione is out of patience and leaves. And then there is the big Quidditch. Oh, and she slaps Malfoy. And then there's a big Quidditch final and there's lots of drama in the Quidditch final and Lee Jordan is saying lots of things. But then Harry grabs the, the snitch just in time and they win. And they win. You did so good. 
did I really, I felt like I, I'm a little off my game and I do not have much game to spare when it comes to 30 second recap. You hit all of the major plot points. I did. I, yeah, but I did the slap out of order just because I re- didn't, I remembered it afterwards. I mean, that's to show how, show us how it's done. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. I'll count you in on your mark. Get set. Go. So Lucius Malfoy co- convinced the people to behead Buckbeak and Hagrid is just heartbroken and Hermione is heartbroken and she's like, I'm so sorry about Scabbers. She doesn't confess that it was her fault though, which you'll notice. And then she slaps Malfoy and she gets so distracted by that that she misses charms and Ron is like, you're cracking up. And she's like, no, I'm fine. And then Trelawney storms out and then sports, 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 sports. And then Oliver Wood is so happy that he's crying and he hugs Harry. There is a lot of sports, 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 sports in this chapter. There is. Okay, I mean, I feel like we have to start with this traditional moment of triumph, right? Absolutely. Which is Hermione slapping Draco Malfoy. (laughs) (laughs) So, obviously, no one here on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text condones violence. But you know that debate that we were having a few years ago about whether or not it was okay to punch a Nazi? I feel like that's what this moment is, right? Like, Hermione's essentially punching a Nazi, right? She's slapping Draco. You you punch a full-grown Nazi and you slap a baby Nazi. And I think the reason that at the end of the day this feels triumphant to me is the power differential, right? And not just the size power differential, but like Draco is a pureblood with a father who pulls all sorts of strings, gets Dumbledore kicked out, gets Buckbeak killed. And Hermione is someone who he has called a slur like a book ago, right? And and is this muggle-born vulnerable kid. And I just, I freaking love it. I do. It is a moment of genuine triumph for Hermione on behalf of all of us mudbloods. Yeah, I, as you said, Vanessa, like this podcast does not condone violence. But another thing that we don't condone is like the equivalence of all forms of violence, right? So like, as you described it, the Malfoy family is involved in incredibly violent practices, right? And that's in the general scale, but also in the immediate moment, they're celebrating the execution of this hippogriff, right? Like it's an innocent hippogriff. That's right. I mean, it's it's sort of like if a if a nuclear missile is falling on your city and you punch it as it lands, there's still <laughs> only one act of violence there, right? Like it's just like this scale is important. And so th- something about Hermione standing up to Malfoy is it feels triumphant here. And and I think that's right. You know, one of the things that you you voiced in your story, one of the concerns you voiced was if triumph is understood in the context of contest, so someone has to be defeated or something has to be defeated, I think you voice some concern that the sense of defeat becomes personal or overly personal, That right? And so I wonder if there are other ways to think about what's triumphing over what in this scene. On the one hand, it is Hermione triumphing over Malfoy in that she slapped him and that was the end of the end of the encounter. But we also know that this isn't a story which is not over, and there are going to be lots of struggles and violence between that family and Hermione and other students for the rest of the series. And we can also think about what's triumphing over what in Hermione's own psychology, right? Like one way that we might think about it is that in this moment, her loyalty to Hagrid triumphs over her commitment to sort of a particular kind of propriety. 
right? And I think that's what you're celebrating, which is like a kind of propriety which would say, oh, I ought not to slap him, is triumphed over by just a fierce loyalty to Hagrid and an anger at Malfoy for all the harm that he's causing. And then you can think about triumph not as the defeat of a person in particular, or, or you don't have to dehumanize the other person in order to have a sense of triumph. And you can instead see sort of competing interests and competing values within Hermione wrestling with each other in the moment and one coming out on top. And in this case, the one we want to come out on top is the one that comes out on top, which is that loyalty and that fierceness towards what she cares about. Yeah. And that willingness to break rules, right? Yeah. What she has just done is followed all the rules and done all the research in order to beat Malfoy at his own game, Lucius Malfoy at his own game legally. And Lucius Malfoy, it turns out, just pulled strings and cheated the system. And this is a moment, I think, where Hermione is like, doing it legally doesn't always work. And so what, I right, like, this is what she can do. She can humiliate Draco. And and Draco's going to either go back and tell his dad and be embarrassed or not go back and tell his dad. And again, I'm not saying it's good strategy, but I do think that this is interesting character development for for the Hermione we know who will later not go to school her seventh year of Hogwarts. The girl who thought in book one that expulsion was worse than death is, you know, in a few books going to be willing to not go to school to fight for something. And I think that this is just a big transition moment for her where she's like, the, the legal channels don't always work. Sometimes you have to break a rule to make a point. Yeah. If triumph carries a sense of one being defeated, like the the side who's defeated here in one sense really is her side because she's on she's trying to defend Buckbeak. The victory here for her is not at, le- at least at this stage of the novel, not of her over Malfoy because Malfoy's still getting what he wants and she's not. It's something internal to her character, which is what I do agree with in what you're saying. Something inside of her, which is saying, I am going to place my loyalty to to the good and to the people who I love above these other kind of systems of propriety or practices which are less reliable, which are being exposed as less reliable and less useful. I've been thinking a lot about how identity formation happens in relationship to other people, right? Hmm. You figure out who you are by a little bit trying out your responses on other people and seeing which ones make you feel good and which ones make you feel bad and what attributes you want to grow into. And I think that Hermione has been able to ignore a lot of bullying her whole life, right? Everyone teases her about what a nerd she is. Everyone. Even Ron, right? Like even Ron exploits her for homework and, and Harry rolls his eyes when she raises her hand too fast. And in this moment, she's, she's being put in relationship with another kind of bully, you know, a systemic Mm. kind of bully. And I think she's, identifying that she is not someone who is going to take that lying down. Yeah. And that is why I love this moment, right? She's like, this is not, I'm not going to just be like, well, the system's big. I'm going to (laughs) like slap and bite and punch my way through it. And I just, it's my favorite trait in someone. I think that's absolutely right, right? And I think that's where kind of the framework of triumph maybe really helps us because we, in the context of this moment in the book, they are losing. Buckbeak is set to be executed, right? It's what what has victory here is Hermione's sense that I will I will lose a good fight 
before I will stop fighting. Right. Which is a victory, right? Which is the the reason why we love this moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. What is interesting, Matt, is that I I actually think that this is so identity changing for Hermione that she misses class, right? This is the first time that she's like not using the time turner effectively. So when when she slaps Draco, they're all walking to charms class, Ron, Harry, and she are walking to charms class. And Professor Flitwick goes, you know, you two are late. And Harry turns around and he's like, where's Hermione? (laughs) There should be a third one. And then after charms, they go to the Gryffindor common room and they see Hermione having passed out there. And it is the first time that she hasn't effectively worked the time turner. And she says, I'm sorry, I was so distracted by Draco. And so I think that again, like the triumph of personality changes like this, of these kinds of developments, we see how they're exhausting. Like it literally makes her kind of pass out and it makes her like lose track of time. And I know that I have felt that way, right? When I like do something slightly out of character and I'm spending time processing whether or not I'm proud of my behavior or all of my feelings about it, right? Like it feels like an emotional growth spurt that can be very disorienting. And so I wonder if part of that for Hermione is this like, that was a moment of where I felt triumphant and am I glad I did it, right? Like, it's a big adjustment what she's going through. Yeah, I I think you're right. I think that she's used the language of identity and I think that's the right language. I think that she's coming into a new sense of herself. I mean, this always happens with folks at this age. This is just normal, right? It happens with folks at every age, right? But maybe especially in, in this stage of adolescence, but standing up in this way is helping her to understand herself in a new way. And that can be, Exhausting and also super confusing because you're like, oh, I thought I was this kind of person, but evidently I'm a different kind of person. What does that mean? And what it means for Hermione is that she's the kind of person who will miss class for her friends. Not just miss class, but miss a whole year of school, right? Yeah. She's the kind of person who will sacrifice the things that she thought were the most important in the world, like grades for, for loyalty and friendship and all those things, which makes her a great Gryffindor and probably why she's in that house, right? But I think that's the right read. I think that's absolutely... What is triumphing here? What's triumphing is Hermione's developing sense of her herself as this kind of person. But that leads me to 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 a different like moment of triumph in the chapter. Right at the beginning, when you know, to use the language of our our theme this week, where it seems like Ron and Hermione's friendship finally at last triumphs over the conflict about Crookshanks that they're having. Do you think it's a triumph is a useful way to think about this situation? I mean, it, it seems like Something is being defeated there. Something's being overcome, at least, in that moment in an important way. But I'm not sure that triumph is the right language. What do you think? I mean, perspective is given, right? They've just gotten this letter from Hagrid, you know, that's tear-stained and Hagrid is heartbroken. And I think that there's just a common enemy, right, which is often a quick way to bond people is to give them a common enemy. Hmm. And so, yeah, I think, right, like suddenly Scabbers, you know, doesn't seem like such a big deal. And that's what Ron essentially says, right? Like he was old anyway, and like maybe mom and dad will now give me an owl. Like he, he's actually not that upset about Scabbers. But what do you think is triumphant in this moment? Because perspective triumphant is not like a great rallying cry. I mean, I think there is something about the triumph of friendship, right? That like triumph does the sense of triumph does really come out of 
a framework of contest, right? Of like something is at odds with another thing and one's gonna come out on top, right? And I don't like thinking about this as like Ron is at odds with Hermione and who's gonna come out on top here. That's that's the wrong sort of triumph. And I don't think that thinking about triumph in that way helps us read this situation at all. I think one thing we could say is that what's at odds is like, can their friendship weather this fight, this argument that they're having, which has gotten kind of cruel and nasty in these last several chapters, right? Like, I think because we're readers, because we've read this before, we always kind of assume that they would figure out a way to work it out in the end. But the text paints a pretty clear picture that they're both suffering. Ron and Hermione are both suffering. They're both really angry. They're, neither one is giving an inch. This is a struggle, and their friendship is really up at odds against something else. And as you note, setting their friendship within a different frame, a different kind of crisis emerging, brings what's important into relief for them. So they can say, oh, right, we are friends. We don't need to have this other argument. And that allows the friendship to triumph over all the all the conflict that they were feeling and leads to this kind of modest moment of repair or reconciliation at the beginning of this chapter. So I think if we're going to think about this in terms of triumph, it has to be about not about Hermione triumphing over Ron or Ron triumphing over Hermione, but as their friendship having met like this severe obstacle and having overcome it. Matt, I'm so grateful for that reframing because that is the form of triumph that I feel like I often get stuck in when I'm disagreeing with a friend or Mm. Peter and I have a fight, right? Where it starts to feel like your whole sense of self is attached to you winning, right? And you're like, if I am not triumphant in this fight, I will be destroyed. And I feel like the thing that Peter is really good at, right, is essentially being like, can we just let this go? Like, this is actually not about our entire sense of selves. Neither of us are objectively correct about how to use the kitchen counter, right? And he'll just be like, it doesn't matter. I love you. And like, it's not, right, like, spices are spices, right? And yeah. and I think that that is what Hermione and Ron are doing, right? Like they could get in this endless loop of your cat shouldn't have killed my yeah. rat. You don't have proof, right? And like the more right. that your ego gets attached to that, it feels more and more high stakes. And it's essentially you feel as though by saying, I'm sorry, my cat killed your rat is saying like, I, what does it even feel like? <laughs> It feels like you're going to give up your whole identity for it. I mean, they were in that loop, right? They were they were absolutely in that place. Yeah. And, and you could see them. It's almost like a sense. I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting from my own experiences of the similar kinds of conflicts, right? Like the the less sure you are that you're right, the more you cling to it. Because like, what else do I have other than this commitment in this relationship anymore? Right? Like, <laughs> like all we have <laughs> is this argument. So I need to hold fast to my position. Right. What I love about what you're saying is, that we get focused on the wrong thing triumphing, right? Mm -hmm. We get focused on the, I have to be right. And that has to be what triumphs. When there's actually something beautiful about being like, do you know what's triumphing here? My care for you. And like my care for you is much bigger than like where the spices get put and a rat, (laughs) right? right? And I think that allowing space for that triumph in our, you know, just allowing that inch of space for a new kind of triumph to come in, a bigger kind of triumph, is a really helpful way for me to think about it. Like, my affection for you is going to triumph over your misplacement of the spices. Correct. No matter how abjectly wrong that placement is. Exactly. 
I care for you in a triumphantly over your wrongness. Exactly. That's <laughs> Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So Matt, I think the place to look about that like toxic form of triumph that like I'm always right and nothing matters more than my rightness is the problem with Trelawney, right? We know that Trelawney actually is a gifted seer, (laughs) but it is her absolutism and her, to your point, right, like the more wrong she feels or the more unsure she feels, the sure she behaves, that I think is what makes her a bad seer and a bad teacher, right? She, no matter what happens in the class, she takes credit for having, you know, seen it ahead of time. She speaks in a way that any action she does, she does this double speak, which drives Hermione up the wall when she's like, I see that this is going to be on your final exam. And Hermione is like, she writes the final exam. That's not seeing, that's deciding. And I do think that it is Trelawney's commitment to this absolutism and this perfectionism that is so destructive. And what she should allow to triumph is like her desire to teach kids and her subject of divination, right? And a a good divination teacher will be like, we're, you know, sometimes we look for signs and signs aren't there. And it's actually about seizing signs when they appear to us. And humility is a really important part of divination. And instead of seeing that that humility would actually allow her subject to triumph, she's trying to dominate 
the subject. Yeah. Right? She's trying to triumph over the subject rather than allowing the subject to be what it is. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I think you're right. It is exactly this kind of toxic triumphalism, right? Which is like a refusal of humility and a refusal of any of this other stuff, which is operating in the way she handles this classroom and especially the way she handles Harry and Hermione in particular in this room, but also in the way that she kind of cultivates the admiration of Parvati and Lavender in the divination classroom. One way we might resist the concept of triumph here is that, I mean, triumph presumes an actual contest, like a somewhat equal contest, right? A somewhat equal conflict. And she has all the power in this room because she's a teacher, (laughs) right? That's one of the things that frustrates Hermione so much, that frustrates Harry so much, is that she basically, it's a hollow victory, this, this triumph, because she does have all the power. She does get to decide what's on the test. She can say whatever she wants to Harry about his future, and he just has to listen to it and and become the object of fascination and pity for the rest of the students in the class because of what she says, because she actually does have all the power. And she's so she's not really triumphing over anything. She's just like exercising that power in a super public way that is self-aggrandizing in a way that, you know, frankly, recollects other substandard the Hogwarts teachers that we visited in the past. And so so I think I think it's right to think about the kind of toxic triumphalism in in Trelawney's pedagogy here. But I also think it's worth noting that there actually isn't a real contest in this room. She has all the power and and part of what's toxic about her triumphalism is that she flaunts it so heedlessly around the room. I mean, Hermione finds a power and grabs it, right? Yeah. She's like, do you know what? I am taking too many subjects, so this can be one I drop, which is a power that she has that other kids don't. Yeah. Because other kids are correctly subscribed to the number of classes that she they should be taking. But what's so interesting and, to me, toxic about Trelawney in this chapter is that she even takes credit for that, right? Yeah. But what's so interesting is that Lavender and Trelawney both do it. So Lavender yeah. says, when, when Hermione storms out, Lavender says, oh, Professor Trelawney, I just remembered you saw her leaving, didn't you, Professor? Around Easter, one of our number will leave us forever. You said it ages ago. And Professor Trelawney claims it. She's like, yeah, I did. I knew she was going to leave. And I love Lavender's triumphantness here. At the beginning of the semester, Hermione was like, belittling Lavender's bunny dying (laughs) and was really mean to Lavender. And so having Trelawney say in this chapter, as Trelawney does, oh, Hermione, like, I've never seen anyone with such a closed third eye as you. Like, you have such a literal mind. And then have Hermione's storming out undercut by the fact that Trelawney predicted it, I think must mean a lot to Lavender, right? Like, oh, Hermione's not always right. You know, my bunny was predicted to die and she was just mean. Whereas then Trelawney taking credit and, you know, sort of enjoying this triumph over Hermione in the exact same moment is really gross to me, right? Like Lavender is reclaiming a little bit of her power and her dynamic with Hermione. Whereas Trelawney is, this child has just taken some power from Trelawney that the child should absolutely have. And Trelawney is trying to claim it back behind Hermione's back. Yeah, I think that's right. And really smart. I had forgotten all that about Lavender. I mean, I remember now that it was Lavender's bunny, but but you're right. Like there is this history between Lavender and Hermione, particularly around the question of divination, particularly around like this classroom and this conflict. And so I think that's a great read of Lavender. And 
And also a great reading of Trelawney, because that's what's happening. And also because Trelawney reclaims this power after Hermione has left the room. So like Hermione has like it's it's a cheap shot. It's a low blow. It's it's claiming a thing that was already yours. And it doesn't even matter now because the student's gone. But you still need to perform this kind of authority in the absence of the child. Yeah, it's that toxic triumphalism that you that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation about about Trelawney here. I mean, in some ways, Vanessa, I think that the most obvious example of triumph in this chapter is the least interesting. Because the most (laughs) obvious moment of triumph in this chapter is Harry grabbing the snitch at the end of the Quidditch match and doing it at a moment which leaves them 200 points ahead of Slytherin House, which means that they win not only that match, but also win the Quidditch Cup. It's a moment of triumph because the contest is rough and dirty. What we're told by the text is that the Slytherins opted for size and strength rather than skill and that they're they're trying to basically injure or intimidate the Gryffindor team into not scoring enough points to, so they'll lose the, the cup, right? That it doesn't even seem like their aim is necessarily to win. It's just to frustrate the Gryffindors so much that they won't be able to get the points necessary to win the, the cup. And right at the end, Harry and Malfoy see this. Actually, Malfoy sees this inch first. Harry catches it. He has the superior broomstick, so he catches up and knocks Malfoy's arm out of the way and grabs a snitch. And as you noted in your recap, Oliver Wood is crying and everyone's celebrating and there are cheers everywhere. And it, and and Dumbledore hands the cup to to Harry. Uh, and it's this very obvious moment of triumph with the the brass cup and everything. And maybe because it's so clear, because it's so obviously a triumphant moment for all the reasons we've described it's it is an obvious contest there is this long struggle the the outcome is not necessarily known and the kind of pluck and and persistence of one side overthrows the other and not only that but it's a side that is the good side that the side we want to win or whatever it feels like triumph but but i think because it's so obvious it just doesn't teach us much about about what triumph is or what it could be in the same way that like some of the other conversations we've been having about applying triumph in this chapter might teach us. But I don't know. You, that's just my first impression. You probably have something very wise and important to say about this, the conclusion of the sporting match. <laughs> uh, probably. Um, I don't know. I think that what's interesting about sports is, to me, I, there are a lot of things that are very interesting about sports to me. I, I like, I like sports and give sports a hard time. But part of what's interesting is how arbitrary they are. (laughs) And I mean arbitrary actually in a really nice way, that it's something that you and I have agreed on that we're going to take seriously, Mm -hmm. even though we totally made it up, right? Like there's certain things like the health of a child or, you know, hunger that we all just intuitively understand is serious. But there's something really lovely about you and I just deciding (laughs) This is serious and treating it like that. There's something very human and lovely about it to me. And you have a double arbitrariness in this game because it's not just that Gryffindor wants to win the game. It's that they have to win a certain number of points to be double triumphant. They can't just win Mm -hmm. the game. In fact, if they only won the game, they would actually lose the cup. So they have to win by more than than 200 points, right? And so Oliver Wood keeps saying that to Harry. You can't grab the snitch until we're 50 points up. And to me, it is doubly 
the toxic form of triumph because none of what's being celebrated here is good sportsmanship. None of what's being celebrated here is courage or, you know, uh, collaboration, right? We've seen really triumphant moments in sports this season, right? Where Cho Chang tries to protect Harry from the Dementors, where Cedric Diggory tries to give the points back because he's like, I only caught the snitch because of Dementors. We've seen these beautiful moments that sports can bring out in people. And instead, because this is only about the rules and this is only about triumph and power and triumph and winning, it is bringing out just the ugliest part of people. That is really interesting. I, yeah, I was right. You did say something wise and important about this <laughs> because because there's a way in which the Slytherins do triumph by forcing the Gryffindors to play their game, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, yeah. the Slytherins come into the match saying, we don't need to win. We just need to frustrate the Gryffindors enough that they can't be 50 points ahead of us when they get the snitch, if they get the snitch, right? right. And so they play dirty and they try to hurt people. And that leads the Gryffindors, quite understandably, to retaliate and to start to play the same way. And the best chance that the Slytherins have is that the Gryffindors will do exactly that and lose focus and stop scoring and start doing the wrong thing, which is what starts to happen in the match, right? And so, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, although Harry and the Gryffindor team do triumph in the sense of winning the Quidditch Cup, I think it's it's not a very, like, admirable match in any sense. I don't think most... Quidditch fans would watch it and say it was a a well-played match. It certainly wasn't a clean-played match or a fairly-played match. Uh, I'm Madam Hooch says it, right? Yeah, you're right. She says, this is the ugliest game I've ever seen played. Yeah. And she's saying it about both teams. There's a moment in which both teams have penalty points at the same time. Yeah. And, And you can see it corroding literally their talent, right? This like over-focusing on triumph at all costs backfires, right? Alicia takes a penalty shot and she's so angry she misses the shot by several feet, right? But that is because Slytherin has played so cruelly that Gryffindor has played cruelly and that the ante has just kept being stacked higher and higher until Alicia is so upset about it that she can't even score. Yeah. I think what I learned about myself is that I love sports where the triumph is not who wins, right? Like, I love the moments where that is upset in some way. And it's interesting, right? Because in order for those other moments to happen, in order for, like, teamwork or, you know, caring across team to happen, you actually do have to try to win, right? Or it's not fun. If you're not taking the rule seriously, if you're not genuinely trying, then the other things can't triumph and be beautiful. But to me, the really trying is about letting the other things happen. And in this Quidditch game, the focus is so on triumphing over the other team physically at all costs that none of the things that are beautiful about sports are able to shine. Yeah, I think I I absolutely agree. I mean, that, that our, you know, our, our arbitrary agreement that this contest matters is what makes us all try our best. And it's when we all try our best against each other in contest and good spirited, good natured contests that these other virtues like teamwork and excellence that they emerge. Right. But it can also get twisted when the victory becomes more important than things like teamwork and sportsmanship and excellence.
now it's time for our spiritual practice. This week, we are continuing our practice of Havruta, in which I will ask a question and then answer my own question, and then you will respond by asking your own question and providing an answer. Vanessa, I'm still fascinated by this moment early in the chapter where we have this reconciliation between Ron and Hermione. And I think it's because, as we talked about in our theme conversation, because their conflict was so bitter and it seems so intractable at times that these two characters whom we admire and who figure out how to get through stuff a lot could not figure out how to get through this. And then the note about Buck becomes, and I think enough time has passed that they, you know, whatever's going on, and Hermione's clearly emotional, that there is this moment of repair. And the way it goes in the text is that Ron sort of without thinking reacts to the emergency and reacts to Hermione's distress and just kind of says to her, don't worry, you won't have to do this alone. Mm-hmm. I mean, his exact words were, you won't have to do all the work alone this time, Hermione. I'll help. So there's like an acknowledgement that he was not involved with the work before, that he was distracted and that she was doing it all on her own. And he says this and then she immediately just kind of erupts in emotion, throws her arms around him, and then says, I'm sorry. I'm really, really sorry about Scabbers. So here's my question. Does Ron need to make his gesture of support in order for Hermione to apologize? Is that what breaks the impasse here? Is that Ron kind of gives first, and that's what summons the apology and the reconciliation? And my answer is a qualified yes. (laughs) Because I think what happens in that moment is it is that line from Ron to Hermione when he says, you don't have to do it alone this time. Because implied in that, although not articulated, implied in that assurance is an apology about having abandoned her to this work on her own and also for having isolated her, which is the thing that she's been suffering from all this time, being isolated from, from everybody and from Harry and Ron in particular. And especially when she's going through so much else, we know with the time turner and everything that she's already feeling very stressed and, and isolated. There's implied in his in his assurance that she won't be alone this time, that they did leave her alone last time, and that they did make her do this work on on her own. And that's just enough apology. It's probably insufficient apology from him, and I hope that she, he apologizes more directly in some other moment. But it's just enough apology from him for her to reach out to him in return. So that's my reading. What do you think? Mm-hmm. I I completely agree with everything that you said. The one just like thought I want to add, which doesn't contradict anything you said, is that they just didn't have a way out. And sometimes like, and sometimes that's why you stay in a fight. Because yeah. you're like, can we call scene? Can we like say uh, like a safe word, <laughs> right? Where it's just like, I am now bored by yeah. this fight. I am no longer mad at you. I was mad. My emotions have run out. And that is such a difficult moment. And so this letter from Hagrid just allows them to become themselves again and not the pissed off hormonal teenagers that they were. I think that this stays with us our whole lives. I'll speak for myself. I know I still have these very petty moments. And my maturation process has meant that they don't last as long. And I have gained the skill of not waiting for an emergency to end these fights. But instead, I'm like, can we can we just call a truce and hug it out? And then it's awkward for another however much longer. And then yeah. things go back to normal. Right. And I think they're just they, they didn't have another way out. And so it's sad that it has to be this letter from Hagrid. But it is lovely that they seize this moment. And I think that 
interestingly, one of the things that's so lovely about it is that it's unintentional, yeah. right? That Ron just has this reaction and it's his true self, not his entrenched self. It's his unstuck self yeah. that comes out in this moment. And that's so lovely. It's almost like this emergency distracts him from what he'd been paying too much attention to, right? Like he forgets right. that he's mad at her because there's a crisis. <laughs> and then once right. he says it, it's too late. And, and Hermione just grabs it, grabs the opportunity to repair, which is exactly what yeah. he's ready for, too. So once again, Hermione is the hero in the situation. Because <laughs> <laughs> his decision is unconscious. I think that he's distracted from his anger and just does it. But then she notices in that moment that 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 is that they can repair if she just grabs onto that. And she does, which is great. See, and I, and I know that you were joking. I think it's beautiful. I think both of these things are beautiful, yeah. right? I think it's so beautiful that Ron loves Hermione and Hagrid so much that he literally forgets that she's mad. Yep. And I think it's so sweet that Hermione's like, here's my chance. That's right. And like literally, literally throws herself at it. Yep. And so it, this is a moment where you can really see why they are such a great pair as friends or, you know, partners later. So my question back to you, Matt, is does Ron owe Hagrid an apology? We have, we see this, right, that this letter is addressed to Hermione. And it's so beautiful, right? Dear Hermione, we lost, right? Hagrid really sees that Hermione has been on his team. And it's actually Hermione who includes Ron and Harry again, and now Ron is 13, and so, you know, it, and has been distracted by things. But I think what's part of what's so upsetting about this fight is that Ron didn't just punish Hermione for this fight. He punished Hagrid, right? Like, he abandoned Hagrid in a time of need. And so I'm wondering if you think that Ron, at this point, owes Hagrid an apology of, like, walking down to the hut and being like, I let the fact that I was pissed at Hermione pull me away from wanting to spend time with her and therefore researching this with you. And I'm so sorry. You are more important than a petty fight with me and Hermione. And I want to say, yes, that, I mean, this is not a skill that I have, so I'm not going to be hard on Ron, but I don't think one of the things that I'm good at is seeing the way my actions, like with person A, potentially impacts person B, right? I'd like to think that I'm, okay at apologizing to person A, but like often bad behavior impacts, you know, layers mm -hmm. and layers of people in our life. And so again, without judgment to Ron, I think in a perfect world, he would also go down to Hagrid and be like, I let the fact that I was pissed at Hermione get in the way of yours and my friendship. And I'm so sorry, I'm here. I think you're right about that. I, you know, in the last chapter, Hagrid says this to them and, and Harry kind of apologizes. He says, sorry with Ron next to him, and then Hagrid cuts him off and says, I'm not blaming you, right? And he, and he says, he understands, right? And it's fine. Um, but that doesn't mean Ron probably doesn't also deserve to, to extend some apology uh, as well. And I also think that, that his determination, that, the, that this project really becomes something that Ron owns in the rest of the chapter. We, we read in the chapter that, that Ron kind of takes charge of this case and and he's the one and and we all know ron is not a person prone to deep study um, not like hermione is but he he is buried in the books for much of this chapter because he really takes some responsibility not just for for hermione for having left her alone to do this work before but also for hagrid for his friendship to hagrid 
And I think that commitment is a kind of an expression of remorse. It is an act of kind of amends or atonement. But I think it probably does need to accompany an apology. And I hope that in one of their conversations while he's preparing this defense that that Ron has said something of an apology to to Hagrid. Well, Matt, I think I feel like what I've learned about myself in this episode is that I need to stop being so stubborn when I fight with people. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. You're welcome. Then good has triumphed. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This week's voicemails from Amber. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and everyone else on the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. I'm responding to a recent episode about respect. In it, Vanessa mentions that she's going to be going to Yellowstone soon and that she expects to see more wolves and coyotes than normal in the park because of the time of year. I wanted to let her know, as well as the rest of the community, that this isn't likely to be true because wolves and coyotes are currently under attack all over the country, but specifically in the northern Rockies, the states of Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. In the hunting season that just ended, 25 Yellowstone wolves were killed. This represents about 20% of the Yellowstone wolf population. I was really moved by Vanessa and Matt's discussion about delineating between animals that are dangerous and animals that are evil. 
I personally don't believe any animal is evil, but wolves and coyotes, though they're dangerous sometimes, are not evil. And in order to respect them and to respect the planet, we have to learn to live with them. If this is an issue that matters to you, you can tell your elected representative that you want wolves to be relisted under the Endangered Species Act. You can also go to relistwolves.org for more information and ways to help. I know this is different from the kind of thing you normally feature on your voicemails, but it is kind of an emergency situation for these animals, and I think they need our help. Thanks. Amber, thank you so much for this beautiful voicemail, and I really appreciate you teaching me. This is something I appreciate about our community. I, when I was a kid, the gray wolf and wolves in general were on the endangered species list, and they are not on the endangered species list anymore. And so I thought of this as a, a great success and did not do more research about that. And so I'm really grateful that you wrote in. And I am clicking on take action at realistwolves.org right now. And yeah, I'm just really grateful for this community in general for always teaching us. And I hope that everybody joins me in taking action. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Genevieve Hain, who was two years and seven months old and was an aspiring artist and gymnast. Jim Scaglione, who was 88 and a grandfather to many. Jackie Jesse, a surrogate grandmother and a quilter extraordinaire. Barbara Evans, who is 56, who is a member of the deaf community, an aunt and a cancer warrior. Kinsey Green, 69, a beloved husband and obituary writer. Freddie Stadler, 56, a father and radiologist with passion. Jerry Lynn Cohen, who is 62, an extraordinary actress, mom, and friend. Jeannie Four, who is 80, a mother, grandmother, gardener, and prankster. Julia Elizabeth Oliphant Wilhoyt, who is 97 years old and 11 months, a beloved grandmother, a force of nature. Matthew Moore, 34, a truly free soul. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Now is the time where we share blessings for the week. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week? I would like to bless Neville Longbottom. I was just thinking about the secondary and tertiary people in our lives who get hurt when we're jerks. And the only real mention of Neville in this chapter is that Harry dreams that he has to play Quidditch with Neville. And Neville is like synonymous with useless 
in Harry's subconscious. And that is that goes without comment. And I just feel like if that is how people think about Neville, he is dealing with like a million paper cuts a day of like hurt and exclusion. And he's not really in this chapter, but that's my problem with it. Neville Longbottom is out there existing and is not getting the love he deserves. And so for anyone who feels a little ignored and as though they're not getting the love they deserve, this blessing is for you. Matt, who would you like to bless? In a Casper Tercal moment, I would like to bless Oliver Wood this week. Woo! In a previous, uh, I think it was a Patreon perk, I questioned his skill as a coach. Mm-hmm. I know. We both but did. We both did. You're right. We both did. And I, I haven't changed that opinion. However, I just know that this <laughs> that this victory is just what Oliver has wanted more than anything for so long. And he got it. And I'm happy for him. Even if I think that he he approaches it somewhat wrongly. <laughs> and I'm I'm glad that he, he got it. So he feels triumphant in the wake of this match, I'm sure. I think he feels maybe a, some peace and contentment for the first time in a long time. And so blessings for Oliver. Well, Matt, next week we are reading book three, chapter 16, Professor Trelawney's prediction through the theme of rest. Rest. Okay. I'm going to stay up all night preparing. Good. The only announcement before we give our thanks is that we are doing our big Patreon push this month. The best way to wish me a happy 40th birthday is to subscribe to our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Harry Potter sacred text. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Uramas, and our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Amber for their blessing this week, Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Kyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. We'll talk to you next week. And the subject of uh, whatever she teaches. Divination. Thank you.